0: Hi, you're listening to Sunday Mornings at Sherman Bible Church. We're really glad you chose to join us today. Well, good morning. Obviously, Dennis, being in Cuba, he can't speak today. So uh, if this is when your first time's with us, welcome. My name is Jeff. I'm the executive pastor here. And if this is your very first time with us, let me just bring you up to speed. We are in the tail end of a series entitled Margins. And the reason why we entitled this series, Margins, is because when we looked across America and even in our own community, what we saw was that many people are suffering from pain, a deep subjective sense of pain. And that shows up in different areas, from finances to relationships, even physical and emotional. And we diagnose the problem as simply overload, that is, There is more expected of us than we can give. That's why when you ask people, how are you doing, you hear words, if they're honest, uh, they say things like, well, I'm really busy, I'm frantic, Uh, I'm depressed, I'm desperate, I'm exhausted. Why? Because we're overloaded. So what's prescription? Prescription is simple. Margins. Margins is simply the distance between where I'm at, what is expected of me, and where my limit is. Now, the unfortunate thing in our society is limits are seen as something bad. We're, we're seen as weak when we say, I have a certain limit. I need to live underneath it. People will say, well, you're just weak. You need to extend your capacity. And while that may be true, for most of us, we need to reduce what is expected of us. And we call that distance between our expectations and our limits margins. And so what's the prognosis? Well, the outlook is in fact very bright if you're able to establish margins in your life. What will happen is you will begin to feel healthier and you'll begin to experience life as it was intended to be lived. Words like passion, enthusiasm, joy, strength, fruitfulness will begin to come out of your life when in fact you have margins. Now here's a little disclaimer. Margins in and of themselves are only useful as long as we arrive at the destination we are looking to arrive at. So they are simply the means. They are not the ends. So what is the end? What is it that we are striving to arrive at? And if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. And right at the beginning, Matthew's going to summarize what Jesus' message was all about. We call it the good news. Good news for who? Good news for us. Good news. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. This is what we're striving to arrive at. And Matthew says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's a pretty short message, don't you think? You say, "Woohoo! let's go home. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. What Jesus means is take a look at your life, interrogate reality, consider where your life is, compare that to what I am offering you, and make the necessary changes to get on the right path. Repent. Kingdom of heaven. Kingdom, no, that's terminology we don't typically use. Kingdom, meaning there's a realm and there is a king. God is king and there are certain citizens of the kingdom. Kingdom. And the way you enter into the kingdom is not by signing a piece of paper. Jesus says in John 3 that it is by a new birth that we enter into the kingdom of heaven. So that is what we're striving to arrive at. That's the good news, that we take a look at our life and we choose to live in the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus rephrases that in Matthew 11. So let's turn there. Again, he's expressing the good news, and he expresses it in the form of an invitation. And we'll read this in Matthew 11, starting at verse 28. Now, my only kind of concern here is this. We're going to read some verses which are very familiar. No doubt you've heard them before. And and I just sense that too often when we come to a familiar passage, we nod our head and say, yeah, 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 I've heard that before. But the the question I pose to you, okay, you've heard it, but do you understand it, first of all? And second, have you embraced it? Have you made it your own? So let's read what Jesus' invitation is. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So it makes a general invitation, and who does that invitation go out to? He says, all who are weary and burdened. Now, if you have uh, any ESV translation or New King James or New American Standard, you'll see that it says, all who toil and are burdened. And believe it or not, that's actually a better translation than NIV because that first verbal form is an active form, which means it's something that you are doing. It's something we're doing, we're toiling, we're in labor. The second, burdened, is passive, which means it's not something you're actually doing. It's something that's placed on top of you. So what Jesus is saying is that all of you who are laboring, you're working hard, and for those who have had a burden placed upon you, this invitation is for you. Now, Jesus doesn't give us any other uh, particulars on who these people are. And they're probably not you, it's probably other people who are laboring and striving and heavy burdened. And I think what he's talking about is just life. That in life, when you look around at other people, you'll see that they're they're busy laboring, they're striving, and they're feeling the burden of life. That's just part of living. And I also think in particular, because mankind's number one problem is sin, I think we're laboring under Our enslavement to sin we're feeling the burden of our sin so we're laboring and striving it's like if you've ever uh, just uh, let me just share a personal experience if you've ever said to yourself you know what I'm gonna control my tongue from here on out that's it I'm gonna control my tongue and just a few days later you let it rip with your family members right Uh, or you say you know what I'm done with throwing my uh, temper tantrums I'm done and a couple, late, a couple days later, in the midst of stressful time at work, you just ream out a coworker, Or maybe you said, you know what, I'm done lusting. I'm done with that stuff. Only to find a week later you've dug yourself a hole and you're back where you said you would never be. That's what it means to strive. We're striving against sin, but we never seem to be able to control ourselves. And the burden of life. Now, in Jesus' time... Those individuals, uh, Jesus was probably in particular referring to the religious system that his immediate listeners would have been experiencing. Because the religious leaders, what they did is they put a burden of legalism on top of the people. And that was an extreme burden to try to please God, to try to earn his favor. That was a burden. And maybe some of you who have grown up maybe around church have experienced the burden of legalism. Of course, our own society puts a burden on all of us. We call it progress, right? Progress is supposed to solve all of human misery. Yes, we've made improvements in our health system. We've made improvements in wealth. We've made improvements in our education and, and our ability to get knowledge. But think of what we've left behind, relationships. Are our relationships better now than they were years ago? Think about our mental health, our emotional life, our physical life. Progress, yeah, maybe it solves some things, but it's put a bigger burden in other areas. And so I believe Jesus' words are very applicable today. We're striving against sin and we're feeling the burden that life places upon us. And so what's his solution? He says, come to me and learn from me. Here's a great thing. He's not only teacher; he is also the curriculum. He says, "Come to me and learn from me." Now, let's say that you're going back to school, and as part of your education, you've got to take this general ed course, and you didn't really pay attention. And so, you go to the class on the first day. You sit down, and then comes the professor. Um, she has a syllabus, and she hands them out. And so, you have the syllabus in front of you, and she writes on the board, "Johnson 101." Hey, that's interesting. Then she writes her name, Professor Johnson. And you're saying, that's really strange. And so she begins to explain what this course is. She says, This course is going to begin with my genealogy. We're going to look at my forefathers, then we're going to look at my birth. Then we're going to look at my early childhood uh, memories. We're going to skip the middle school years because I don't want to revisit those. Then we're going to go to the high school years. We're going to look at my college years. And then eventually we're going to go to modern day and we're going to look what I had for lunch yesterday. Because this class is all about me. I don't know about you, but I'm sitting there thinking, i, I got to get out of here. did not that sound very self-serving to have a class about yourself? But if you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the greatest human being who has ever walked this earth, and you offered a class about yourself and your life, don't you think we ought to line up outside the door to try to get into that class? That's why he calls us his disciples. That's just a fancy term. That's a a religious term for learner. We are learning from Jesus how to live life. He is the teacher, he is the guide, he is the way. We are learning from him how to live life. So he's the teacher, he's the curriculum, we come to him. Now when we come to him, what will we find? And I think what we find is some, actually something better than margins. Because look at back to verse 27. Matthew, Chapter 11, verse 27. Jesus says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Talking about good news. When we come to Jesus, we not only get Jesus, we also get the Father. We get to know God himself. Now that is great news. What a miracle that we get to know God on a first-name basis. That is good news, that we get to know God himself. Turn, if you will, to Philippians. We're going to see how this is lived out in the life of Paul. Twice we're going to check out Paul's life as it relates to our uh, topic today. So if you would, turn over to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Now, if you were in a comm group this week, or you did some of the reading that uh, were in the notes, hopefully you read these few verses last week, so they should be very familiar to you. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to begin at verse 7. Paul says this, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. Now, I have to explain something. What he did in that letter, he just explained how he had lived his life up to the point he met Christ. And he said, You know what? I was living a plush life. I was a Pharisee. I, I was the epitome of what life was to be lived like, or at least so we thought. Maybe in our day and age we would say, you know what, up to this moment I had, I had all the cars I needed, I had the house, I had the reputation, I had the job. But Paul says, whatever was to my profit I now consider as loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You see, when we come to Jesus, we not only get to know him, not only do we get to know the Father, but we have the very righteousness of God imparted to us. And Paul says, "Once once I experience that, once I experience knowing Christ Everything else is lost. Nothing else compares. Now, if God were to come to me, for example, and say, Jeff, I would like you to write a portion of the Bible. Um, first thing being, since I'm more of a materialist, I would say, okay, God, how much are you going to pay me to do this writing for you? And if you were to ask me to do something like verse 8, verse um, I would probably put it this way. What is more, I consider 95% of my life a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because you see, yeah, most of, the majority of my life, compared to Christ, I'll take Christ. But there are certain areas in my life that border on the same importance for Christ. How do I know that? Because those are the areas I continue to sin in. But a person who knows God, who actually sees God in all his glory, the allure of sin, of power, uh, the seductiveness of pleasure, all of those things kind of fall away when, in fact, you see Christ for who he is. So that's Paul's, Paul's experience. Once he got to know God, everything else in life paled in comparison. So turn back to Matthew chapter 11. So when we come to Christ, we get to know God himself. We get to experience The righteousness that is ours, not because we earned it, but because God gives it. And notice what Jesus says. He says, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Now, this rest is very different than some of you right now who are taking a nap. That's not the rest Jesus is referring to. But you can thank me later for the little extra uh, uh, shut-eye. It's a whole different kind of rest. Jesus is saying, in effect, I know what you've been looking for. I know what your soul longs for. And I can give you that rest, that rest in your inner being. And I I don't think we can actually put words to it that we we just know there's something not right with our life. There's something I'm looking for, and I just haven't found it yet. One day I'll write a song about that. You two's already beat me to it. They still haven't found what they're looking for. And Jesus says, you can find it. You can find it in me. I will give you rest. So when we come to him, what kind of person will we find? And Jesus says, I am humble and gentle. Isn't that a comfort to know that when you come to God, you're not going to get a lecture? He's not going to be harsh with us. He is humble and gentle. Also, go back a few more verses to verse 18. 18 and 19. Let's also see what what kind of person Jesus is. Now Jesus is speaking and he says, John, and he's referring to John the Baptist. John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. Now the son of man, and he's referring to himself, the son of man came eating and drinking and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard. So when we come to Jesus, we are coming to a drunkard and a glutton. That's who we're coming to. No, of course not. He says, they say that's who I am. Now, what, why would they say that of Jesus, that he is a glutton and a drunkard? Well, because Jesus says, I came eating and drinking. Unlike John, and he's not saying John's style of life was wrong. He says, I came eating and drinking, and so they're, they're saying I'm a glutton and a drunkard. Now, who was he eating and drinking with? Probably where it says here that he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners, Turn back to Matthew chapter 9, and let's see an example of that. Why would people refer to Jesus as a glutton and a drunkard? Chapter 9, verse 9, we're just going to take a small snippet. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. He says simply, follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, let me just pause. I'm impressed with Matthew. I don't know if you are, uh, because... I realize when God tells me something, uh, my style of obedience is first to debate with him. To say, okay, God, I understand what you're saying, but have you considered this? Or I'll say, you know what, God, that's good. I'll do that when I get a chance to it. I'll put it on my to-do list. Um, Notice Matthew. He immediately got up and followed Jesus. So while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now when the Pharisees the bad guys in this situation, saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, now let me just pause here for a second. Isn't that kind of funny? Here's the Pharisees, they see what's happening, and rather than just talking to Jesus himself, they talk to his disciples. But obviously they did it in a close enough earshot that Jesus heard them. You know, you've met people like that, right? They're trying to communicate to you, but they don't have the guts to tell you by your face. And so Jesus says in response to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That word call actually carries with a sense of inviting an honored guest. Jesus says, I have come to invite my honored guests. And who are those honored guests? They are sinners. woo that's me. I don't know if that's you or not. But his call goes out to us who are sinners. And he calls us an invited guest, an honored guest. Now, this was quite, quite the scandal. This is something you would see on TMZ late at night. Because Jesus is having a meal with those that were considered Sinners. And and believe me, that's still alive, and it's still very active today in American churches. There are still many people who say that really true followers of Jesus are the proper and the pious. They're going to lurk a certain way. They're going to talk a certain way. They're going to have certain jobs. And they try to put us in a little box. I think Jesus just explodes that box and says, I am here for you. Come and have a meal with me. Now, to the Jew of that time, you could have, for example, breakfast and it'd be no big deal. And they can talk to you out on the streets. But for someone to invite someone else to dinner was the same as saying, I want to have fellowship with you. I want to deeply bond with you. That was part of the culture. And what Jesus is saying here is, I want to deeply bond with sinners. Let me drive this this image home even a little bit more. Let's say, for example, Jesus wants to come to your house today for dinner. Okay, 5 o'clock. So you've got about five hours after we get out of here to clean your house. So get, get ready. So he comes over for dinner, and you sit down, and you, and you just kind of begin chit-chat. And then you begin to tell him the story of your life. But as you're telling him the story of your life, you begin to realize he understands you so much more. Maybe then you even understand yourself. And even though you're kind of putting a positive spin on your life, he sees the deep, dark manipulations that you've had with your family members. He sees your deepest, darkest sins. He sees your deepest, darkest desires. And all of a sudden, you're beginning to feel shame. Like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble here. Because you cannot put any cosmetics on that. He sees right through it to who you actually are. And you're expecting then to see condemnation in his eyes. You're expecting to see judgment. And instead, you look into his eyes and you see compassion. You see empathy. You see acceptance. Paul Tillage has this quote. He says, grace, and that's what we're talking about, what Jesus is extending to you across that dinner table. Grace strikes us when we are in great pain and restlessness. It strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of a meaningless and empty life. It strikes us when, year after year, the longed for perfection does not appear. When the old compulsions reign within us as they have for decades. When despair destroys all joy and courage, we hear a voice saying, you are accepted. You are accepted simply accept the fact you are accepted when you're sitting across from Jesus and sharing a meal his demeanor his eyes his language all communicates one thing you are accepted that is what we call grace So when Jesus, in this, going back to Matthew 11, when he says, come to me, he says, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. What that means is rest is given, but there's also a second kind of rest because he says you will also find rest. So there's two two things going on here. He says, I will give you rest and you will find it. He gives it to us. That's grace. We have pardon. We have reconciliation. We have the righteousness of God given to us. But we're also in the path of life going to find rest. And that's the Christian experience. So where do we find that rest? And here is where it becomes, for me, very shocking. Because verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Period. This next statement is to me very shocking because he then immediately says, take my yoke upon you. Now, in my early days, when I was very young, now I grew up in an urban area. Okay, so it will explain this. But the first few times I remember reading this verse, I kept thinking to myself, what in the world does this have to do with eggs? Because I don't understand this whole yoke thing. Now, I understand they're they're spelled differently, but that's that's my initial thought. What's that had to do with eggs? Now, I know better, so I, I have grown up a little bit. But here's what's shocking. Jesus says, I'm going to give you rest, and then immediately says, take my yoke upon you. Now, those listeners in that day would have known exactly what that was, right? Oxen, two pair of oxen, nay, were the heavy machinery of the day. They were to do the most physical, arduous labor there was. And he says, take my yoke upon you. And I'm sure the listeners were saying, well, which is it, Jesus? On one hand, you're telling me you're going to give me rest. On the other hand, now you're telling me take my yoke upon you. You're going to do the most physically demanding thing there is to do. Make up your mind. To me, that's shocking. How can that be? Jesus is promising rest and he's promising very hard labor. Well, let's, let's, to find that answer, let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. Again, we're looking at the life of Paul to see how this is lived out. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to pick up actually in verse 28 and read verse 29. Now, Paul is speaking, and he says this. We proclaim him, he's talking about Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor struggling. Now, if Paul was talking to me, I would say, "Hold on, hold on, Paul. I've got a verse for you. You you're laboring and struggling. You need to read the words of Jesus, who said, "Come to me, all who are laboring in our burden, and I will give you rest." Because Paul, I think you need to find some rest. Then Paul would fire back at me. No, no, you don't get it. To this end, I labor struggling with all of whose energy? His energy, which so powerfully works in me. Because Paul would say, you know what? I've come to Jesus. I understand what rest is. And he's given me a mission in life. And I'm laboring to fulfill that mission. And I have taken on his yoke. And as I'm working hard, I look over to the side and I see who's, who I, whom I'm connected with. And guess who's on the other side of that yoke? Jesus. He's the one laboring with me. That's why Paul could say, I am working very, very hard, but I'm working with the strength that Jesus provides. He's working alongside of me. Jesus gives us the great commission. He says, you need to fulfill this. We begin working at him. we say, man, this is impossible. We look to the side and we see that Jesus is working right beside us. It is with his strength that we are working. Turn back to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, verse 37. Now, this is Jesus speaking. He says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now, that's not too bad. Uh, Now, of course, it'd be better if he said anyone who loves his father-in-law or mother-in-law more than me is not worthy of me. That'd be easy for us to accept. Oh, here it gets a little harder. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Uh Uh-oh. That's hard to swallow in our child-centered culture, is it not? That Jesus says, if you love your kids more than me, you're not worthy of me. He goes on to say, anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Yes, we're focusing on margins. But what Jesus is asking us to do with our extra time and resources is not just to spend it on ourselves. It is to spend it for him. Not only our extra time, but all of our life, we are to spend it for him. Now, How do we learn to do that? We learn from him because he actually lived those verses out, did he not? He constantly gave up himself for his followers and for you and me. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, back a couple more pages. Now, I realize I'm kind of picking these verses out of a bigger context, but in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says this. He says, Therefore... Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Now I don't know if you've ever built a house. I'm assuming that's hard work. Jesus is saying, "Yes, you 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 listen to my words. Okay, that's a start. But the real key is to put them into practice, and that's hard work. It's like building a house. It is hard work." The great thing is, as we become more like Jesus, we realize it is much easier to follow his words. At first, it is very hard. Why? Because that's not our nature. But as we learn from Jesus, and as our nature is changed, we more easily, with ease, are able to follow him and his commands. Why? Because that's who we are. It's hard to be loving with our acts if, in fact, in your heart, you're not very loving. But if you're very loving on the inside, acts of kindness just naturally come. There was a guy who wrote a book, um, and it was a business book, and he he had a little section called The Genius of the Word And, A-N-D. And what he said is that in business, sometimes there's two uh, concepts which may appear mutually exclusive, and you you might put one against the other. You might say that as a business, we can either have a good product or we can make money, but we can't do both. But he said the genius of the end is, is, as a company, try to have a good product and make money. Do it together. And I think this is what Jesus is saying 2,000 years prior. Is he's saying that resting and striving mark the path to life. When he says, I give you rest, that's just not, uh, you're, you're stopping working. What he's talking about is inside of you experience in the grace of God such that you cease striving to impress him. You stop trying to impress others. You stop trying to accumulate stuff which you think will make you happy. You rest in who he is. And you are striving to fulfill the great commission. You're striving to make sure that you're dying to yourself and living towards him. And you're striving to put into practice everything he says. It is resting, and it is striving. That is the path to life. And that puts our margins into context, is that we're not just, we're preaching margins so that you have more time to spend on yourself. No, because we're preaching margins because this is the path to get to where we need to get, that we can rest. We understand it's an attitude of the heart and an attitude of the mind. We bring that to wherever we go so that we can strive to live out what Christ wants us to live out. And that brings us back around to kingdom living. Because kingdom living, if I were to summarize it, is simply this. It's letting God be God. Letting God be God. Louis Giglio, he wrote a book, and and, and part of the book, he, he talks about how when we come to God and we get a glimpse of who God is and we understand that he is the great I am. God referred to himself as the great I am to Moses. Jesus referred to himself as I am. Now, if God's name is I am, our name is then I am not. He is I am, we are I am not. Because I am not the center of everything. I am not in control. I am not the solution. I am not all-powerful. I am not calling the shots. I am not the owner of anything. I am not the Lord. I am not the Maker. I am not the Savior. I'm not holding it all together. I am not all knowing. I am not God. See, when we come to Jesus, we understand who He is we understand our place. And there's a real humility that comes from there. And there's a sense in we, we can release all of our feeble efforts to try to control situations, to try to control people. And we let God be God. And that frees us up to be the people God intends us to be. So that then we can redirect our efforts to doing what he's asked us to do. And that's take the good news to other people. If you would, pray with me. Father God, we just acknowledge that you are the great I am. We acknowledge that we are not. We acknowledge that you are in control of everything. And Father, we desire the rest that your son promises. And we want to come to him and experience true rest. And we want to fulfill what you've asked us to do as a church, as a people, of taking your good news to our friends, neighbors, and our community. We lift you up and we praise your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information, feel free to visit our website at shermanbible.com or call anytime during our office hours, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5 p.m. at 903-893-7795.